Hi, everybody. I am so excited to have Cass Nelson Dooley with me today. She's going to be talking about all things uh, oropharyngeal microbiota, and she's going to give us some really good clinical take-homes. Uh, but first, she's going to introduce us to the oral microbiome and, uh, you know, what's going on there and, of course, the connection with disease. Before we jump in, I want to give you a little background on Cass. I've known her for years. I count her among my very best friends. Uh, she's the owner and chief executive officer at Health First Consulting, uh, a company that seeks to promote the paradigm shift in healthcare using the written word. That's great, Cass. Uh, she was a medical education specialist for eight years at Metametrics Laboratory, now Genova Diagnostics. She enjoys teaching, presenting, writing, researching, um, and focusing on how to uh, address the underlying causes of disease, not just symptoms. Cass co-authored uh, with me on nutrient and toxic elements in laboratory evaluations for integrative and functional medicine. So that's the textbook on uh, laboratory science published by Metametrics. She was also an author in case studies in integrative and functional medicine. Uh, again, she did a wonderful job on that book. At University of Georgia, she completed a Bachelor's of Science in Ethnobotany and a Master's of Science in Ethnopharmacology. I always like to brag on Cass a little bit. She did a Fulbright in Panama focusing on what was called a black drink, and this is something that they gave people with parasitic infections. Cass discovered that this botanical combination uh, was very iron-rich, and I'm sure it had some uh, anti-parasitic botanicals in it as well, and I've always encouraged her to publish it. Uh, anyway, I'll stop bragging on you, Cass, and just welcome you to um, the podcast. Thank you so much for that introduction. I'm really happy to be here. So talk to me about oral microbes. Uh, why is it such an interesting and important topic for us as clinicians? Yeah, I was kind of amazed to realize how important oral microbes were. Um, with, with my history at Metametrics and Genova, we did a lot of stool testing and so there's a lot, I feel that there's just a lot of emphasis on those gut microbes and how they influence human health. And so I had an opportunity to do some in-depth research on oral microbes for a newsletter that I wrote with Stephen Olmsted at Prothera, Claire. And just kind of it opened the wide world of oral microbes and how important and how linked they are to gut microbes. Mm. Um, but the oral microbes are, are neat just because one thing is we have a lot of different ecological niches in the mouth. You know, there's the teeth, there's the gums, there's, um, you know, bacteria above the gums, bacteria below the gums, there's bacteria on the tongue, on the roof of the mouth, um, on the tonsils, you know, so there's just a lot of special niches um, that, you know, characterize that, um, my, that m microbial diversity. Um, the other thing, well, I might be jumping ahead, but the other thing is just that the bacteria in the mouth, um, we are swallowing something like a trillion bacteria every day. 
just through saliva and chewing and brushing and things like that. And those all go into the, into the gut. Mm. So, you know, those potentially have an incredible impact on the gut. I mean, back in my days at uh, Metametrics and, and Metametrics and Genova, we talked a lot about, you know, how to impact those gut microbes. And we did know that what was happening in the mouth could impact it, but I don't think we knew how um, strong that link is. Right. So, um, and then there's the mucosa in the mouth, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, we talk about gut mucosa a lot, but the mucosa in the mouth is very porous. So um, there can be penetration. I mean, that is a barrier, too. And so um, if that barrier is damaged, again, you know, the microbes in the mouth could um, wreak havoc, essentially. Right. Yeah, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. So, you know, leaky, leaky gums, periodontitis right. and so forth. And um, right. we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in a minute. I do want to make sure also um, that we talk about biofilm because I know biofilm is huge and that would be its own ecological niche as well. Do you do you want to make a say a few things about biofilm now and then we'll sure. move on? Okay. Well, I, mean, I was really excited to find out, you know, because we again we talk a lot about my um, <clears throat> excuse me microbial biofilms in the gut, and we worry when we're trying to treat dysbiosis in the gut that you know biofilms are preventing um, kind of you know effective resolution of infections because that biofilm is protecting those bugs and we can't get to it with uh, natural, you know, antimicrobial agents as easily. Um, And so it was really exciting for me to find out that plaque is just biofilm. You know, the plaque that the dentist takes off with your teeth is a bacterial biofilm. Um, So, and it was the first discovered medical biofilm. So um, it's just kind of shows that, you know, that um, feature of bacteria creating biofilms to protect themselves is very important on the teeth, right? So the, mm-hmm. the, there's a lot going on in the mouth. Right. And bacteria have to be kind of hardy to really hold on yep. <laughs> in the mouth. And so I think plaque, you know, and, and um, those biofilms are really important for their survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, I mean, something like, going to the dentist and having plaque removed is keeping that under control so that it doesn't, you know, overgrow and lead to gingivitis or periodontal disease. Right, right. And just brushing, obviously, oral hygiene, flossing, et cetera, would really be important as well. So we're assuming exactly. we're assuming that, well, we're talking about biofilm in the, in the negative light. So, I mean, we know biofilm can increase antibiotic resistance, I've read up to a thousandfold. I would assume that's occurring in the oral cavity as well, just those dysbiotic players being able to survive within the biofilm. Um, but are there, yeah, is there... That's true. Is, that's, it is true? That's true. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's so fascinating. Um, and that, But also we know that there are healthy biofilm as, as well. And did you come across that in your research uh, for the oral... Well, that's a good question. I think you're right. It was it was really more about the negative um, aspects of biofilm, but 
for sure you're you're right that the healthy good bacteria commensal bacteria in the mouth also form biofilms and Mm -hmm. um and that's good for them too um so yeah i think that's a great point but it is funny you know how the research really kind of focuses more on the pathological issues Right, like this, like Streptococcus mutans. You know, that's a bad bacteria, or you know, these these uh, quote pathogens that have been identified in the mouth that create disease, and that's you know where there's a lot of focus instead of on the bugs that protect us from developing disease in the mouth. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so I just want to I want to get a little bit of background for from you and then we're going to jump into talking about strep mutans and some of the other bad actors and systemic disease, but just let me get a couple of background sure. things. So, you know, you mentioned the, you know, obviously the the oral microflora is, and we're swallowing a trillion of it a day or more, and it's very connect. It's you know, it's part of the whole alimentary canal. So, how is it connected with the colon microflora? Is there overlap between what you're seeing in these two yes. microbiome? Yes, there is, and it looks like it's about a 45 percent overlap. Um, there was a really excellent paper by um, Sagata et al., and they they were looking at um, they basically used research from the Human Microbiome Project, which is from about 200 healthy humans, where they took samples from over 15 sites in their body, in their bodies, and they, you know, looked at the microbes in the mouth in various areas of the mouth, right? Just, just as I mentioned that there's a lot of different uh, niches that um, those were all sampled. And then also, um, you know, microflora in the colon or from stool samples. And they found that there was about a 45% overlap in the microbes found in the mouth, oral, oropharyngeal microbes, and colonic uh, microbes. That's, that's fascinating. So that was pretty incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Now, just, you know, drilling down into that, anything you can mention? I mean, are we seeing Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes phyla show up in the oral microbiome or any specific species? Yeah? Okay. Absolutely. Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes are there. Um, And that's easier to say because those are the kind of big level phyla. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll be honest that when they kind of break down the microbes by genus names, I, ha- I am not familiar with enough of them as colon bugs, you know, colon bacteria. Um, obviously, we don't see a lot of streptococcus. I mean, streptococcus is really the big player in the mouth, mm-hmm. um, and we don't see a lot of that in the colon, usually. Right. At least, you know, from the stool tests I've looked at right. uh, over the years. Well, and we also... Um, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, the go ahead. That's a food. Now, Fusobacteria is one, okay, but Fusobacteria you can see in the colon and you can find it in the mouth, but, you know, that one can um, lead to some pathological changes to certain species of Fusobacteria. Right. Well, I'm thinking, yeah. obviously, you know, the, the microenvironments are you know, so different in the top end versus the bottom end. I mean, we think about the colon as, 
you know, colonizing mostly anaerobes, where obviously the mouth is, you know, continuously exposed to oxygen. So that would be changing the specific, you know, genus and species level, wouldn't it? Yes, but you know, I was surprised to find out that fifty percent of the bacteria in the mouth are anaerobes. <laughs> wow, it's kind of amazing when you think about how much oxygen is going into our mouth all the time. Jeez, but I guess they're just buried. Mm-hmm. You know, they're bar- and I mean, there are of course bacteria underneath the gums. Right. Um, but yeah, that's there's a lot of anaerobes, and prior to PCR. You know, those those organisms were all unknown, unidentified, because they couldn't be cultured. So, you know, just like with the gut, in the last few decades, there's been a lot of new information about these bugs in the mouth because of that new technology. And these anaerobes, they're both, they would both be considered good players, and I would imagine bad players are also existing as anaerobes as well. Right, right. Okay, yeah, and that seems. Exactly. I, I'm I'm thinking that the biofilm probably influences their survival as well. Um, yeah, and may, I don't know. Maybe the biofilm helps pro- keep them. You know, helps yeah. protect that anaerobic status because. Right. Yeah. Right. Just reducing the quantity of oxygen. Um, you know, just one more thing on this topic. Obviously, then you know what we're eating. Uh, and we'll, it, it is going to be influencing, obviously, what's what's happening in the entire um, alimentary canal. So it's going to support, you know, growth of. A, if we're eating healthy, it's going to ex- support, you know, growth of the healthy microflora um, in the oral cavity. But just really on down the line, and I guess it's not surprising that you know there's there's some connection just based on the, you know, the food that we're exposed to and what microflora it's going to support. Right. I really love that you brought that up, um, especially with your naturopathic training, because I I do think that, I mean, that, that was a neat realization with this, um, in this topic, too, because, you know, again, we just, it mirrors, the mouth mirrors the gut so much. I mean, the the let's say small intestine and colon, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is what we think about when we talk about the gut. But it is interesting how food really is introduced first to the mucosa in the mouth. You know, so even immunologically, there's a lot happening from that first bite potentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, but the diet connection is really important there in the mouth, and the most obvious one everybody knows so well. Uh, they probably don't even, you know, realize this is about diet, which is sugar, mm-hmm. you know, sugar and cavities. It's just, you know, immediately that high sugar um, diet, of, you know, affects the microbes in the mouth. And it basically d- turns into a dysbiosis right. of the bacteria in the mouth, which leads to decay and um, changes in the acid, you know, acid-base balance in the mouth and... Um, so that's kind of, I didn't, you know, come across a lot when it came to diet. I'm sure there's a lot out there. Um, but sugar, of course, is the most obvious one because the development of cavities is so well understood. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it probably parallels, well, I'm sure it parallels the damage that occurs downstream in the small intestine and in the colon. So we can see it obviously reflective in the mouth with, you know, periodontal disease, um, cavities, et cetera. So it's just, and, you know, bad breath. I mean, just all, you know, the features, right. I mean, we're motivated to, to brush our mouth, but to brush our teeth, but, you know, downstream that same kind of damage is likely, you know, is occurring, <laughs> not, you know, in, right. the, in, in, in those respective um, areas of the colon. God, it's just, it's really interesting to me, Cass. And, you know, the other piece I wanted to just throw out there is that, you know, there's, there's all of the oral, um, you know, lymphatic tissue that surrounds the whole alimentary canal. And you're right that it's extremely immunologically active. I mean, I remember looking at, you know, the salivary assessment of, of um, tissue transglutaminase and um, anti-gliadin antibodies and so forth. And, and saliva was considered a, a legitimate uh, specimen for diagnosing celiac disease because of the very active um, lymphatic tissue right there. Uh, so I'm sure that, right. it's, that it's influencing the course of other uh, systemic diseases. And we'll jump in that, into that in a nanosecond, but I just wanted to ask you to, um, just going way, way back to, you know, birth, um, vaginal delivery and C-section. I mean, we know these obviously profoundly influence what's happening, you know, in the, in the lower gut, um, and also the impact in systemic disease when, you know, vaginal versus, versus C-section delivery is, are we see, seeing any changes with the oral microbiome? Yes. So there is a study out that shows that babies that are delivered by vaginal route um, have a, a more diverse oral microflora. And babies who are delivered through C-section have less diversity in their oral microbes, and they're colonized with a periodontal pathogen called, it's called Slackia exigua. And, um, Interesting. you know, it, it, was, it was really neat. And, of course, the authors do say, hi, you know, this does mirror what we know about the gastrointestinal tract lower down is, you know, this difference between vaginal and C-section deliveries. Um, the authors hypothesized that it wasn't that the vaginally delivered babies didn't get exposed to this pathogen, the slackia pathogen, but just that their commensal flora suppressed it better. Ah, that's great. I always think of, yeah. you know, colonization resistance, the word, the term that right. we used to talk about in the lab all the time when we were working on the, um, you know, the DNA analysis for stool. Yeah, right. colonization resistance. So it's happening through, you know, across the gastrointestinal tract. Oh, right. So let's go back yeah. to some of the bad actors. You talked about Streptococcus mutans um, as a player in cavities. Um, you can expound on that if you want to. And also, I do want to jump into um, the oral microbiome and systemic disease. Okay, sure. Um, I think there's a seems like there's a shift happening 
as far as the way we used to think about Streptococcus mutans and the way we're thinking about it now mm-hmm. and, and how it leads to cavities. And I kind of think of it in the big picture like the one back, you know, the one, one disease paradigm. So it's like, the, you know, they have Streptococcus mutans, therefore they have cavities. Um, but really what studies are showing is that that's just an endpoint. You know, really what's happening is changes in the environment in the mouth, um, changes in the microbial balance in the mouth, and then streptococcus mutans kind of rises to the top and creates cavities. Uh. Um, and those environmental changes in the mouth are really important because, uh, for example, poor oral hygiene, right, not brushing teeth or having teeth cleaned, high-sugar diet that changes uh, the pH balance. And, you know, lactobacillus is also involved there. It's kind of interesting. Lactobacillus isn't all good in the mouth. Um, it, it does appear that probi- lactobacillus probiotics can help treat some oral dysbiosis. But there are lactobacillus species that flourish when things are getting out of balance in the mouth, and they kind of lead to the ultimate kind of rise of streptococcus mutans. Are um, would they be more of the, would they be some of the acid lovers? I mean, we think about lactobacillus yeah. acidophilus. Right, exactly. That's why they're, they're, they're very happy when things get acidic in the mouth. And, um, you know, sugar helps set that up. Um, so, and the, the other environmental factor, if you're thinking about the mouth, is the flow of saliva. So, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a clinician, so I don't kind of think about the sequelae of a patient who's got problems with good salivary output, but mm-hmm. um, this is an example of where if you've got problems with kind of healthy salivary flow, it's going to affect your microbes in your mouth, and then that could affect microbes downstream or maybe even systemic disease too. So... Um, you know, if you couple all those things together, poor oral hygiene, a lot of sugar in the diet, and, you know, reduced saliva, then you really set it up to develop cavities. And um, the other thing that happens, of course, when, that, when those, mi- are those microbes are changing, so the microbial populations are changing, lactobacillus starts to uh, overgrow, and then eventually streptococcus mutans overgrows. And um, the diversity of the bugs in the mouth is less, so there's reduced diversity. Right, right. In this case, it's really a dysbiosis. I mean, yep. you know, just like we would think of in the gut. It's a pro-inflammatory dysbiosis, and you know, you talk about in your paper. By the way, folks, we will have a link to the PDF of Cass's paper. Uh, It's very well written, uh, not surprisingly, really well referenced, and um, it'll just provide detail on some of what we're talking about. But we see this, you know, this dysbiotic, pro-inflammatory environment, and all of the same actors that we're thinking about with regard to, you know, overall gut health and systemic disease come into play. We see higher NF-kappa-beta, excuse me, NF-kappa-B. We see, you know, lower T- regulatory activity, um, 
when this, you know, the micro, the microenvironment is knocked off balance, you know, increased macrophages and neutrophils, etc. Um, and then conversely, you write in the paper that there's, um, you know, a protective effect with some of the good lactobacillus players in reducing oral inflammation. Right. And it's a little bit hard to understand, obviously. You know, uh, Stephen Olmsted and I talked about this a little bit. It's kind of, maybe it's a two-sided coin with lactobacillus. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or maybe it just has to do with the, spe- the species, mm-hmm. particularly. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, there are definitely species of lactobacillus that help reduce pathogens in the mouth. You know, it's been... Um, a variety of companies are selling these oral chewable probiotics or toothpaste that has pro- probiotics in it. Yeah. Um, so, mm-hmm, well, yeah, it, it's, it's two-sided coin. It's, and that's why the environment of the mouth is, is an important aspect to what's happening there. Right. And we can always back up and, you know, eat well and, you know, have good oral hygiene to just allow the natural micro healthy microflora to flourish. But I do, you know, I really, um, I know this is simplifying it, but just thinking about lactobacillus acidophilus, you know, the whole acid producing aspect of it as, you know, potentially linking to, you know, the bad actor lactobacillus species in the mouth as a piece of it. I know, you know, in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, Lactobacillus acidophilus can become a problem player. You know, it's a good guy, well, and we right. we treat with it all the time. But it can become a problem player. Not in everyone with SIBO, but in some folks. And I like the right. I like looking at you know urine delactate to see whether or not I suspect that that's a problem in SIBO, and that the urine the urinary delactate is on a um, you know an organic acid test. Um, yeah, that's an excellent point, and that. Too, is usually due to some type of problem with digesting car, you know, sugars. Yeah, you that's know, so right. So that leads to this lactobacillus um, imbalance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we're talking and about... I'd like to go back... Yeah, go ahead, Cass. Yep. Sorry, I just wanted to go back to what you were saying where you were mentioning some of the immune factors um, because, and I, we have said it a few times, but it is just good to remember that... Um, I mean, there's the microbes in the mouth and in the and in the gums, but um, that immune reaction. So, like even periodontal disease, that comes about from like the microbial overgrowth and the interaction with the immune system right. that then leads to the inflammation of the gums and disease. So, just be and and the immune system also determines if we tolerate these bugs in the mouth, right? So the commensals that we are exposed to at birth, um, those are allowed to stay because the immune system in the mouth has, you know, is, is choosing tolerance mm-hmm. for those bugs. So. That's, it's just, it's great stuff. I, I, the, the power of what's happening, you know, in the, with the oral uh, microbiome and and immune system is really you know you're hitting you're hitting it home quite nicely. Um, okay, so I want to go. I, I want to talk about you know the connection with oral disease and systemic disease. And I I just want to say for a second, going back to Streptococcus mutans um, and dry mouth as you were as you were talking about allowing that whole microflora imbalance and the inflammation to rise and so forth, and then you know strep 
mutans is the byproduct of that, sort of the end result of it. And, you know, strep, an, an overgrowth of strep mutans is noted in Sjogren's, which is sort of the quintessential dry mouth, you know, autoimmune disease. Um, and it makes sense given this backstory uh, of what you've just described happening. So um, go ahead and, and, and talk to me about um, oral disease and systemic disease and how they're, how they're connected. Sure. Uh, this is such an exciting area, I think. And thanks for bringing that up about Sjogren's. I didn't know that streptococcus mutans was always consistently found in those patients, but it does make sense. And I think what we're eventually going to be asking is, is, is it the chicken or the egg? Right. You know? right. Is it the mouth that's leading to the systemic disease or is it the systemic disease that's altering the mouth or you know, maybe somewhere in between. Um, but cardiovascular disease is one that we, I think we've heard enough about in the, in the media, just in the popular media, the link between cardiovascular and uh, disease and oral disease. And um, the other area that was really interesting to learn more about was the high incidence of periodontal disease in patients with inflammatory bowel mm. So um, it really did kind of start to look like leaky gums. <laughs> yeah. It was, was a real phenomena. Um, so, I mean, I think that's, I'm trying to think, I mean, the, the connection in inflammatory bowel disease is so interesting to me. But I don't think they fully understand why it's happening. They just are are seeing that that it's happen that that it's happening. That there's a clear association there. And again, we don't know is it the inflammatory bowel disease that's affecting the mouth, or did it start in the mouth potentially, or is it just the inflammation is throughout the entire alimentary canal and it can be detected in the mouth. Um, but some authors of those papers really strongly promote treating the mouth, too, mm -hmm. when you're dealing with systemic inflammation. I mean, it's part of the target for these patients that are really inflamed. Well, it, that, makes, um, that makes tremendous sense. Uh, any, any microbes in particular that you can point to that might be proliferating in both areas in um, IBD? You know, I didn't get into specific microbes, um, and, you know, I don't think they really did, at least the, the research that I looked at. I mean, I'm sure that there is someone out there that has measured that, um, but they weren't, you know, in, in this. I, I can't really give you a good answer on that one. Okay. All um, right. I think that's a great question. Well, um, you know, one of the things that I noticed uh, looking at the oral microbiome and, and systemic disease was rheumatoid arthritis and the connection with um, uh, periodontitis. So uh, there's a there's a there's a subset of RA patients um, with periodontitis and um, proliferation of um, you know you mentioned this guy in your your paper um, P gingivalis. So there does seem to be, you know, they have been able to, well, just like in, in you know, Sjogren with, the, with strep mutans, they've, you know, they've isolated this P. gingivalis is occurring in um, RA patients who also have 
periodontitis, and they think that there may be an association there. Now, well, that's so, yeah, that's so interesting. And I wonder, did they pick up the, um, the Prevotella gingivalis, it was Prevotella gingivalis, right? Is that, um, that it's, must be the one. Because that one's kind of interesting, because that one has also been found in um, atherosclerotic plaques. So it's kind of, it's like, but I wonder in the rheumatoid arthritis, did they find that bug in the mouth, or did they find it in the joint? They it was in the it was in the mouth and it was in folks okay. with and it was in folks with periodontitis. But you know, again, you're okay. turning on the immune system. I mean, clearly they've got mm-hmm. incredibly inflamed gums, likely leaky, and they're just you know they're they're there's a cascading you know systemic immune response, and that seems to be you know what they're talking about there. Any other systemic right. diseases? Um, well, those were the main ones I focused on, and I I'm, I can tell you more about the cardiovascular disease and kind of the ideas behind that, but the other thing that's pretty amazing is just, I mean, we've talked about how bacteria from the mouth are exposed to the rest of the gut every day, all day long, but brushing your teeth, even something as, you know, simple as brushing your teeth and, and seems so innocent can cause bacteremia. So, you know, these bacteria in our mouth get access to the bloodstream rather easily. Hmm. Um, So it's not shocking to think that they may well be linked to systemic issues or bacterial infections in distant sites Hmm. because they, you know, they have easy access to the bloodstream there in the mouth. Hmm. Interesting. And that's not to mention of, like, you know, invasive dental procedures. Right. <laughs> you know, where they really are. I mean, we all know that tremendous amounts of bacteria are being released into the bloodstream in those yeah. situations. Well, so then that obviously begs the question, Cass, you know, how do we, how do we advise these patients? I mean, it seems to me that if you have poor oral hygiene and you get in there once in a while and, you know, really do a good brushing or have your teeth clean, then you're going to disrupt those those pathogenic biofilms, et cetera, and liberate all sorts of bad actors systemically, you know, if you're doing it once in a while. But if you're very consistent and engage in good oral hygiene practices, um, that you would minimize what's liberated systemically. Did you? What do you think about that? Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I, I think that the, that may be true. Um, I think I kind of was one, you know, I have a little hypothesis going, wondering if maybe part of what, well, brushing helps control the overgrowth of plaque. Basically, it helps us control dysbiosis in the mouth. But I wonder if there isn't something helpful about introducing microbes into the bloodstream. I mean, the the, blood, the body can handle and clear those microbes, but right. I wonder if there's some type of immune, um, you know, exposure, that, uh, some, some benefit yeah. of, of introducing microbes to the blood on a regular basis when you brush twice a day. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just my little hypothesis that's going, but um, I think, I don't think we fully know, you know, all the answers of why this is so great. I think the obvious one is we keep, 
the dysbiosis under control. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are getting a hit of bacteria frequently if we're brushing regularly, even mm-hmm. the good bacteria. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe, you know, and, and the body is pre- prepared to, hand, to clear that rather rapidly. Right. Um, Stephen Olmsted told me they did a study on it back in the 70s when he was in med school um, where med students would brush their teeth and then take blood draws. And it was clear that brushing teeth caused bacteremia. That's so fascinating. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of old news, but right. to me it was new news. Well, it's um, like... I it's, think it's pretty, pretty incredible. It's like the, you know, the very natural and healthy increased inflammation or, you know, oxidative activity we see after exercise. I mean, we need it. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. sort of the mm-hmm. hormesis idea. You know, you have a little extra inflammation or a little extra oxidative um, activity uh, in the mitochondria. And, you know, the whole glutathione antioxidant system is turned on in a healthy and normal way. You know, detox activity is stimulated after these things. And I would imagine clearing, you know, the microbes and the microbial debris um, in a consistent and healthy way is beneficial. But in somebody who's really, you know, decompensated with a significant, um, you know, systemic illness and who doesn't practice good oral hygiene, you know, those once in a while intense brushings and liberation of the dysbiotic microflora with the, you know, the poor um, ability to respond to that because of a systemic disease could be, um, you know, recipe for disaster. I mean, that just makes intuitive sense, you know? Yeah, I mean, that sounds perfect to me i think you i think you hit the nail on the head you know what really sounds like an explanation for what might be happening well and i have to say because because i you know because i'm in i'm a clinician and you know i'm seeing patients all the time and, and and thinking about this it makes me wonder if there isn't you know certain certain individuals that we want to think about supporting with some sort of an antimicrobial rinse you know much like we would treat um, the, the lower gut, you know, do we want them to do some sort of a, and, and it doesn't have to be pharmaceutical, but, you know, some kind of a botanical combination to really help remedy what's going on with the dysbiotic flora orally, in addition to, you know, introducing probiotics, which, um, you know, we'll, we'll chat about. Um, yeah, I think that, I think you're right. And, um, we didn't talk about it that much in the paper. In fact, some papers kind of talk about the negative sequelae from using antiseptic mouthwashes. Uh, um, but I think clinicians could, knowing that, you know, use it in a targeted way, mm-hmm. um, much like the way we have to be really thoughtful about antibiotic use or antimicrobial Otherwise, you know, it's like, okay, if there's really something I need to go after, then I use this. What, um, what, so can you talk about that, the problems associated with sure. antiseptic mouthwash? Sure, sure. Um, well, the, the main uh, papers that I read that talked about it had to do with uh, nitric oxide. So... Apparently, and again, this is just, you know, such a cool topic. All these new exciting things are just coming up. And one of them is that a lot of the bacteria in our mouth um, help 
to reduce nitrate because mm-hmm. humans lack the enzyme to, to uh, turn nitrate into nitrite. So bacteria make that uh, reduction of nitrate to nitrite, and then humans use the nitrite to make nitric oxide. Mm. So apparently the microbes in our mouth are contributing something like 25% of the nitric oxide in the body. Wow. Yeah. So the way that I'm trying to link this back to the mouthwash. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, um, as we know, nitric oxide, um, good levels of nitric oxide reduce reduce blood pressure, reduce atherosclerotic changes, and improve vascular health and all those things. So in this one study, what they did was they gave the subjects mouthwash, and it abolished the effect. It abolished the nitrite levels, it abolished, it changed to the nitric oxide levels, and it, the patients uh, had an increase in blood pressure. Jeez. So it did seem very clear that the mouthwash was killing those nitrate-reducing bacteria, in the mouth, and that it was not a good thing to be doing every day. Jeez, that is so. Yeah. That is just so profound, you know. <laughs> it's mouth, really cool. Yeah. It's really cool. It's a pearl. I really appreciate you bringing this up. So regular mouthwash use, connecting hypertension and cardiovascular mm-hmm. disease. Oh my goodness, what a pearl! And right. and and it really is an evidence of caution around you know, the overuse of these um, antibacterial interventions. Right. Anywhere. And flip side, right, and on the flip side, like you were saying earlier, I mean, if you know that there's a dysbiosis in the mouth, maybe using it in a targeted way uh, is a good idea. Right, right, right. And, you know, just the way we think about botanicals in the lower GI um, as being more... Um, modifying as opposed to um, completely eliminating or wiping out, um, you know, massive amounts of flora, as we know some some antibiotics can. So maybe the modulating effect of certain botanicals um, would be a safer um, intervention to consider. Right. Exactly. So and on the on oh. Go ahead. I, I just want to add one last thing to that topic because we were talking about, you know, oral probiotics, oral um, antimicrobial wash in certain scenarios. But I also wonder, and maybe you have some ideas as a clinician, but about uh, working to heal the the barrier in mm-hmm. the mouth, even mm-hmm. just like we do in the gut, you know. But um, because in the in those people who have kind of leaky gums they need strengthening in that barrier to help uh, contain the microbes in the mouth. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and I would, you know, and and we think about CoQ10 uh, being essential. Mm -hmm. We think about for stomatitis, um, glutamine rinses, so swish and spits. And, you know, there's an, I think there are a number of good interventions that we could use and probably really not dissimilar um, from what we use in the lower GI so listen, lots of talk about uh, H. pylori. You know, it's one of the causative players in um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And you know, is there any influence in H. pylori 
with the um, oral microbiome? Yes. So um, H. pylori, I mean, I've studied it a lot because of, um, you know, testing for it in stool at the laboratories. Um, but H. pylori was really, they did some studies on it that were really interesting that basically showed that H. pylori lives in biofilms in the mouth. Mm, oh, fascinating. And, yeah, so if, you know, with H. pylori, there's so much difficulty with eradicating it um, in, in, in certain people. You know, they get just recurrent episodes of it. And the biofilms in the mouth would be one of the top things I'd be thinking about in those patients um, because it just helps reinfect them, basically. Right. Because um, they're swallowing H. pylori bacteria into the, into the stomach all yeah. day. And, and H. pylori can survive the acidic environment of the stomach. I mean, it's sort mm-hmm. of going back to that acid-base balance that you brought up. And, you know, lactobacillus mm-hmm. acidophilus, some of the more acidic-loving um, microbes may be able to survive. And, you know, contri- again, just going back to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and the, you know, the oral contribution to it, um, but right. you know, so but sometimes we know H. pylori is 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 a commensal. You know, it's not always a right. problem. So I guess you that's know, true. Yeah, and 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 so and the, this. Go ahead. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. The, I mean, this is again looking at studies where they're seeing it as a pathogen in people who are symptomatic and trying to get rid of it. So we just need to distinguish that, and you know, we can do that. Um, pretty readily in clinical practice. You know, we can look at the H. pylori antigens. Obviously, we correlate that with the clinical presentation. And, you you know, you really can determine whether or not you think the presence of H. pylori is a problem in an an individual. Um, But the really key piece here for me is that the oral microbiome must be addressed uh, as much as the, um, you know, the stomach. Yeah. And one one thing that was neat, too, about the studies on H. pylori was that if they took patients who had been treated for H. pylori with antibiotics um, and one group went and saw the dentist and had regular cleanings and the other group didn't, the ones who had the cleanings had a much lower incidence rate, you know, reinfection rate than those who didn't. So... It's kind of interesting because you're linking getting your teeth cleaned with reducing your chance for reinfection with a microbe, a a GI microbe. That's great. It's great. Mm -hmm. I love these clinical pearls um, because they're really easy things that we can uh, recommend to our patients. They're just easy, you know, safe fixes uh, in most of our patients. And, okay, Let's talk about some action points for clinicians. Um, we're, we've already listed a, whole, sure. a host of pearls, but, you know, talk to me about how we want to improve the microflora and, you know, just in general, uh, action items for, for clinical take-home. Sure, absolutely. And, I mean, we've touched on a lot of these already, but I know it'll be helpful to just kind of corral them all into one place. So uh, some of the big obvious things are brushing, flossing, and dental cleanings. 
as a way to kind of, um, I mean, control that, that microbiome in the mouth, but also make the tissues healthy in mm-hmm. the mouth, uh, affecting the immune system and the, and the, um, and the integrity of that barrier in the mouth. Um, the diet, like we talked about, you know, especially low sugar and plant-based, um, a lot of the nitrate reducing bacteria that we talked about earlier, they like leafy greens. <laughs> so, you know, eating your leafy greens helps increase your nitric oxide potentially. Oh, that's such a great Because um, it connection. feeds your bacteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, healthy salivary flow. So, you know, perhaps when a clinician is doing an intake, that is a key point, not just in determining, you know, do they have an autoimmune condition like Sjogren's, but, you know, how healthy is their microbiome in their mouth? Um, periodontal disease, of course. I mean, if they have periodontal, if a patient has periodontal disease, then I, to me it would be a, you know, red flag for other systemic issues because, mm-hmm. you know, they've got inflammation, they potentially have leaky gums. Uh, I think we might have coined a new term, those the leaky gums. <laughs> <laughs> um and uh, so periodontal, any signs of periodontal disease should be considered. Um, and we talked about treatments. I mean, you, I loved your idea of a glutamine rinse, um, CoQ10, probiotics, chewable probiotics. There are probiotics in uh, toothpaste now from, offered from various companies. Um, and uh, of course, probably treating the gut is going to influence the mouth environment too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when in, in those inflamed patients, we really want to think about treating the mouth too uh, in these ways. Um, be careful, just like we're careful with antibiotics, be careful with antiseptic mouthwash. Um, but perhaps an antimicrobial herbal rinse, you know, like you were mentioning, might be helpful in certain specific cases. And um, consider the oral biofilms. If you're struggling, really if you're struggling with a chronic H. pylori infection, but really if you're struggling with any chronic dysbiosis of the gut, you know, look at the mouth. I mean, there, people refer to it as the mirror of health and disease, that, the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot happening there. So, and I think that's, those are kind of all, the, all of the t- clinical take-homes that I have Yes. in regard to this topic. Um, a couple things that I'm thinking about as you're talking. You know, you're mentioning sugar, um, and I just want to expand that. I know that, you know, this, this probably goes without saying, but... You know, any simple carb, so beyond the Snickers mm-hmm. bar or the Milky Way, um, you know, bread, chewing on bread breaks down to sugar awfully quickly. Um, you know, so mm-hmm. a number, just looking, just expanding to those, um, you know, to those various foods that uh, turn into sugar so rapidly would certainly be contributing. Did you, now, I know... Good point. I know that some of the clinicians listening are probably thinking about fluoride uh, and the overuse of fluoride. Mm. Did you, and now, and, and, you know, I, 
I don't use fluoride toothpaste and I don't advise it, but did you come across fluoride at all in your research? I didn't. Um, I mean, it may have been out there. I was more, you know, under Stephen Olmsted's direction, you know, we were really kind of trying to characterize what are the healthy, normal, commensal microbes, you know, what are the pathogens and how do these affect health and disease. So I didn't spend a lot of time looking into fluoride, but... Mm -hmm. So I, I can't tell you much about that, unfortunately. Uh, um, I, it, I wonder if it does, you know, how it does affect those microbes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm, and I wouldn't be surprised if it has an influence. Um, right. But it is certainly something that we know uh, we're getting excess of, and I think it's been associated with some you know, bone tumors and so forth in kids, so something to think mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, that's a neat question. And, I did, and in my reading, I did um, come across periodontal disease as preceding the onset of some of these systemic conditions that um, I mentioned, rheumatoid arthritis and so forth. So periodontal, periodontal disease really as a harbinger, you know, of things to come if it's not addressed. And I think you stated that, and I just want to hit it home. Um, anything on mercury? You know, I didn't come across anything on mercury. Um, my only thought about mercury on this topic was, I don't know how many cases you've seen in your clinical practice, but on the phones with doctors at uh, the, the laboratory, I felt like I routinely heard about these cases where there was an invasive dental procedure that pretty much led to a very serious chronic illness mm -hmm. in patients. And I, you know, I'll, I, you know, without fully understanding what was happening, and I think we all kind of assumed, well, it must be they had, they may have had mercury amalgams remo removed. That would sometimes, you know, trigger a, a downward spiral for mm -hmm. a patient. Um but I, it also occurred to me through the process of this, well, yeah, mercury amalgams may be creating that downward spiral, but also this huge burden of bacteria into the bloodstream may also have led to a downward spiral for right. the patient. Right, absolutely. Um, but, yeah, but otherwise I don't have a lot to say about mercury um, on the microbes. So what are your thoughts? Well, it, you know, what comes to mind is the potential, a couple, two things come to mind. So when we were writing the elements chapter um, and I was focusing on mercury um, in laboratory evaluations and in integrative and functional medicine, um, it vaporizes really like crazy in the oral cavity. Mm -hmm. And so that's one piece <laughs> yeah. leading to systemic toxicity, um, particularly since it, you know, it likely re readily enters into the bloodstream as you were speaking about with regard to the microbes. So that's one piece. And we know that it can be a um, triggering or an antecedent event in the process of developing autoimmune disease. And we've already connected the dots with some dysbiotic flora um, and autoimmune disease uh, in the oral cavity. So um, I, I would say that it's, there's, there's you know, a cl a clearly uh, a, a relationship there uh, between mercury mm -hmm. and, and what's going on in the oral microbiome and, um, you know, and, and its relationship to systemic disease. You know, I think there's, a, you know, just, just in the vaporizing of the mercury amalgam alone um, and the connection. 
So Yeah, no, I think that's an interesting point. And, you know, something um, kind of, I guess to me, that at least as I see it, a little bit more anecdotal, I feel like um, sometimes people, sometimes clinicians in our field talk about um, like chronic dysbiosis or yeast being uh, perhaps caused by a mercury burden. Um, and so uh, that's to me a little bit more of an anecdotal thing or, or maybe a clinical anecdote. Um, but we haven't really talked today about candida in the mouth, but that is a whole nother <laughs> thing, you know. Candida, when the, you know, when the mouth gets dysbiotic, candida thrives. Yes. Um, when they turns into that kind of sick environment that uh, is hospitable for cavities, candida is right there at the front. Yes. Um, so, you know, that, that is something else that comes to mind on this topic. Absolutely. Yeah, we see it as, you know, most obviously as thrush. Um, right. Yeah, that's just another extremely important um, area. And, and, you know, still we're going to be thinking about it similarly with, with regard to change to diet, you know, good oral hygiene, and then of course all of our, uh, systemic interventions to turn it around. Um, Mm -hmm. it's just, it, so this has been such an interesting topic, Cass, and one that, um, perhaps you'll jump on again and we can explore further and, and, and pick up some of these, uh, uh, these questions that we've brought up. I just want to thank oh, you. Wonderful. I'd love to. It's so, so fun talking with you about it, too, because I know you spend a lot of time thinking about the microbiome. Yes, indeed. Uh, anyway, Cass, I just, I just want to thank you again for, for jumping on board the podcast. And also, everybody, you will have links to Cass's white paper um, and then access to her website um, if you want to connect with her. Um, thanks again. Thanks so much.